This is Authorised Access, a podcast from Microsoft Australia and New Zealand about the cybersecurity challenges facing businesses today. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity from Microsoft and beyond as we explore high-level strategies to help confront risk in your organisation. We are living today in a multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment world. It is more critical than ever that we keep our business safe. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. So straight off the bat, I want to just dive straight in to talk about Microsoft Secure. Depending on when you're listening to this, this is either just happened or it's going to be happening tomorrow, occurring 28th of March or 29th for those of us here in ANZ. This is Microsoft's new security conference. This is going to be focused on all things cybersecurity. It's brand new, all of our new product announcements in relation to our XDR and EDR, all of our threat detection, our privacy, our identity and ENTRA. It's all going to be there. So highly recommend going and taking a look at any of the content that you can. All of the new stuff, all of the good stuff will be available there. Also want to talk about a couple of things that have come up in my neck of the woods from a security perspective, particularly focused on Microsoft Sentinel. There's a big change occurring there due to the way that we're dealing with out-of-the-box content and all of our new templates. They're all being put in one nice, neat area for you to be able to access in the Content Hub. This is a huge change, but it's amazing. So if you use Sentinel, Content Hub is where you want to go. Another thing, we've got the amazing ACSC Essential 8 Sentinel Workbook. And I am so thrilled to be able to talk about this one due to a wonderful person in my own team who has actually contributed to this and was the champion for it. So, Kenny, what do you have to say in regards to this one? Because I know this one's definitely close to your heart as well. Yeah, and look, there's a lot of work we've been doing on the ASC Essential 8 templates at different maturity levels, even in Compliance Manager. So this is the Microsoft Purview Compliance Manager, Jess. And the great news now is that if someone buys, uh, let's say, the ASC Essential 8 or the ACSC Essential 8 template in Compliance Manager, they'll actually get all the different assessment templates for you know the different kinds of maturity levels as a part of that. So previously, These were completely separate assessment templates and you had to buy them individually. But now you basically just get that specific standard or regulation like AST Essential 8 or framework. And you basically get all the assessment templates associated to that. For example, with the AST Essential 8, the different maturity levels as a part of purchasing that package. And that's just amazing. That's going to make life so much easier for so many of our customers and the organizations here in Australia. And I think just on the the purview side of things, and and uh, Jess, you've you've hit a few things as I said, uh, like just with the Sentinel additions. But things that I'm loving in purview at the moment is is the forensic evidence, uh, which has just come out of public preview. I really really enjoy that, especially with uh, organisations looking at that insider risk element. It's a really common topic, and having the ability to capture and see the recording of someone actually transferring data to personal accounts, it's very powerful and. The last thing that I think is important to mention, especially with our guest that's joining us today, is number matching MFA. So uh, as we talk about passwords and and how to uh, protect your identity and and moving away from uh, SMS-based authentication, uh, number matching MFA is now rolling out as a default because it's just going to help the employees when they're authenticating. So they're using that number matching instead of just approved deny. 
Dan, thank you so much for that share on the forensic evidence. And look, just super quickly on purview. Look, we had a we had a purview event that happened in the February timeframe. So this is February 2023. It's called Go Beyond Data Protection. So if you do a very quick search for it on a search engine of your choice, Go Beyond Data Protection, Microsoft, you'll actually get to the event and you can watch the recording of that event. The great thing about that event was that there were quite a few different announcements that were made at the event. A couple of the ones that actually stood out for me were that we announced that Compliance Manager now integrates with Microsoft Defender for Cloud. So this is the Purview Compliance Manager that you access from compliance.microsoft.com. It actually now has integration with Microsoft Defender for Cloud. So you can basically govern your infrastructure as a service and platform as a service resources as well from Compliance Manager and uh, view how those resources actually fare against some of the regulations and frameworks that you care about. And then the second very interesting call out uh, from that was that we now have improvement actions for Priva as a part of Microsoft Compliance Manager as well. That wasn't the case before. So you actually had improvement actions for identity and access management and cloud security and threat protection and so on and so forth. We didn't really have improvement actions for Priva. So that gap has been addressed as well. Oh, and you'll actually find a link to that in the show notes. I think that's awesome because I think getting our cloud security together with privacy is just going to make it so much easier. It's that multiple single panes of glass, but if we can bring them together a little bit better, that'd be nice. Today, we'll be speaking with Troy Hunt. He's the founder and CEO of Have I Been Pwned, a website that allows users to check if their personal data has been compromised by data breaches. He's a Microsoft Regional Director and MVP for Developer Security, an ASP Insider and author for Pluralsight. He's created several dozen courses on Pluralsight, an online education and training website for computer and creative professionals, including ethical hacking. He is known for his efforts in security education and outreach on security topics. He's received several awards and recognitions for his work, such as the Mary Latinsky Award for Lifetime Achievement for making the internet safer. It was really good to talk to Troy on this episode. We touched on a whole raft of topics because Troy really does have a very expensive cybersecurity experience. We touched on online security. We talked about security best practices for web development and cloud computing. We touched on how Troy creates content for sites like Pluralsight and a whole raft of other content creation and content publishing venues. So yeah, so it was absolutely incredible. It was a very broad conversation and we hope you enjoy it. And with that, Kenny, I think we'll just dive right into it. Thank you very much for joining us today, Troy. Hey, everyone. Thank you very much for having me here. Look, it's so good to have you on the show, Troy. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for making the time. We really appreciate it. So, look, just starting with your website, Have I Been Pawned? Can you please tell us a little more about that? So what was the inspiration behind it? What led to you creating it? such an invaluable asset for the community. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it's accidental that it's become valuable. That was, <laughs> wasn't the plan. It was about 10 years ago. In fact, it was December the 4th, 2013 that it launched. And there are actually two reasons why I wanted to create it. And one of them is kind of obvious. It's a data breach aggregation and search site. It's like you put your email address in. It's like, here's all the different places you've been in a breach. You've been honed. And the, the other part of the reason was I wanted to, I just wanted to build something. <laughs> so I was, I was working in a role where I was trying to push, in particular, push Azure, push the cloud, push PaaS as a platform rather than just shipping all our stuff off into virtual machines. And I, I wanted to get my hands dirty and make something in anger that wasn't hello world. 
And I was doing a lot of writing about data breaches and I went, wow, there's, there's a lot of data out there. Maybe I could just put all of that in a great big Azure table storage instance and put a website in front of it and then that will be it. And then I can sort of tick that box. And I did not expect that this would be the thing that has sort of come to define me a decade on. My curiosity has gotten the better of me, Troy. What did you actually use to build this website? Is it ASP.NET or something else? Yeah, so it's ASP.NET. It sits on an Azure app service. It uses Azure table storage under that. There is an, a SQL Azure relational database as well. And look, that was the design on day one. And it's, it's largely the same thing that's just evolved into newer cloud paradigms over time. There's a lot of Azure functions these days. There's a lot of Cloudflare bits and pieces there as well. But at the end of the day, it's still the exact same table storage instance I set up almost 10 years ago. That's really still the nuts and bolts of it. Fantastic. Sounds great. So that was nearly 10 years ago. That's a huge amount of work that you've then had to balance with all of the work that you do around Pluralsight and then looking at doing all the stuff as a Microsoft regional director and an MVP and all of the other speaking engagements. How do you balance all of that? I get up really, really early. <laughs> like I literally get up at usually four something every morning. And now here we are 12 and a half hours later and I just keep going. And it's, I mean, it's not quite that bad because it's, it's a weird thing when I don't have an office and a day job and I go into a place that just sort of blends from one cyber or tech thing into another. It's a little bit like that saying, you know, like when you love your job, you never work in a day in your life kind of thing, because I do genuinely enjoy what I'm doing. But I do also just perpetually feel behind like there's always things that i'm wanting to do or that are on my list I, I literally have like a bullet pointed list and some stuff's been there for a long time and eventually i get back and i tick some things off but it, it is a little bit of a juggling act and i gotta frankly gotta make a little bit more time just to have some fun as well so troy just to follow on from that what are some of the most common online security threats and how can people protect themselves from these threats it's probably no surprise, but a lot of it's just the really common stuff. Uh, people reuse their passwords. <laughs> so we have lots of account takeover attacks. Uh, you know, all the time we see credential stuffing lists. So combinations of email address, password pairs, and they're aggregated from different places. And then people pick them up and they go, okay, I'm going to just throw a whole bunch at this service and see what manages to log on. And then a bunch of that service. That's by far and away the probably the sort of the most prevalent by i guess instances of, of attack that we see look there's still all the other stuff around sloppy code misconfigured environments has become a real big one as we've got more cloud and it's been easier than ever just to stand up a, a storage account on whatever your platform of choice is it's also been easier than ever to just screw it up and like not have a password on your storage account so see a lot of that see a lot of things like database backups on websites which is exactly what it sounds like. Like people literally taking a backup of the database and putting it somewhere on their website and it gets crawled and indexed and then someone downloads it and sends it to me. It's kind of crazy just the prevalence of just very, very basic vulnerabilities that are leading to certainly the data and have I been pwned. And yeah, like there's some super cool, sophisticated stuff out there as well, but that's the really niche, small volume stuff. That leads in really nicely, actually. Something we've noticed recently, particularly here in Australia, we've come up a little bit in the international news around some of the high-profile incidents we might have seen over the last 12 to 18 months. And there are so many stories, I know I can put my hand up having my details in quite a few of them, around the impact that this has had. Like, there are babies who haven't even said their first words but are now having their credentials shared on the dark web because of these breaches. So are you seeing 
proactive shift across all sectors or do we need to look at changing regulation to get people to change? Well, firstly, babies have got to start reusing passwords. That would leave them <laughs> in a much better, <laughs> a much better position. I, look, I think the fascinating thing about that is the innocence which you can have in terms of your online behaviour and still end up in a data breach. And when I sort of think that through a little bit more, often you'll say to people, you know, look, don't trust sites that look a little bit shady. Like, don't give them your data. Only give them the minimum amount of data. And I'm like, oh, this is good advice. But it's it, it's not enough to stop you being in a breach. I mean, have I been pwned? I think it's like 26 times or something. And I think a lot about this stuff. So how am I in there? Well, I have a life, right? And I'm on the internet. But there are also so many instances where you're not on the internet and your data ends up in there. I was in the Australian Red Cross Blood Service data breach because I went to a blood van to donate blood and I filled out a form in paper with a pencil, <laughs> but it got digitised and I ended up in the data breach. So I, I think it's it's sort of fascinating that it, it really doesn't matter what your age is or what your behaviours are or, or, or anything else. It's like you will have your data digitised at one point or another because that's just how we build systems these days. And then as it relates to industries, as we were very much in the news in Australia last year, yeah, often the question would be, it's like, is Australia under attack? Is Australia a target? It's like, well, we're on the internet. So yeah, <laughs> like that's that's it. Uh, and it's the same for industry sectors. You know, are, are they targeting the finance sector now? And it's like, what do you think it is? It's like all these folks that sort of sit around their green screens and their hoodies and decide which industry they're going to go after. It's like, no, it's on the internet. So it's a target. And whether you're a bank or you're a website to comment on cats, if you're on the internet, you'll be a target. Yeah, look, that makes a lot of sense. Just on that topic, in your tech adventures, we have absolutely no doubt you've come across a lot of security best practices, right? So things that uh, people can basically build uh, when they're building applications, whether these are web applications hosted on premises or in the cloud, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and so on and so forth. Could you share some of these security best practices with us, Troy? Your personal favorites. Uh, don't reuse your passwords. <laughs> and look, it depends on the audience you're talking to, right? So look, the sort of the datum canonical advice for the consumers is don't reuse your passwords, get a password manager, use multi-factor authentication, tick, tick, tick. You do those things and keep your devices up to date. And you've done like 99% of what you can do as an individual. And then as organizations, a, a whole raft of things with, with my vested interest, training <laughs> is really good for people that are building systems. So making sure that developers go through some sort of secure code training. It's funny, like sometimes I, I see stats around, you know, what percentage of data breaches happen because of human error? It's like, well, there's only ever one answer to that. It's 100. <laughs> it's like 100% of every data breach happens because someone's made a mistake. It's bad coding, it's bad configuration, it's backing up to websites, as I've said before. So because they're all related to human mistakes, that, that is something that we can adjust by changing people. Plus, of course, we can change processes. It could be everything from code reviews to better analysis of anomalous behavior within a network environment. So it's, it's always going to be a combination of different things, and it depends on the audience you're speaking to. And in regards to that, we're kind of looking at it very much from the defensive side, trying to do the right thing. But if we were to kind of flip it a little bit, if we look at ethical hacking, which to me almost sounds like an oxymoron, but it is possible, what are some of the tools and techniques that you think prove useful in this regard to help us defend our systems better? Well, yeah, I guess the sentiment of, of ethical hacking is is you can perform this activity in a way which is intended to do good. 
I run a workshop called Hack Yourself First, and that's just sort of the, the idea. It's like you know, try and break into your own things. Try and do what other people are going to do to you. And obviously the goal there is to try and find your weaknesses. And we do what would probably fall under the banner of ethical hacking when we, we look at things like, say, penetration testers. Uh, yeah, there are folks out there that you can pay a lot of money to that will try and break into your things. Uh, there's digital penetration testers, there's physical penetration testers. People have come around and try and break into your office as well. So I, I really like this idea of going on the offense against yourself to find the weaknesses before other people do that on their own behalf. And then that kind of leads you down the path into things like bug bounties as well. So, you know, well, you can pay other people to try and break into your things. And and if they do, they get a get a nice reward rather than selling your data on the dark web instead. I love that idea. I think it's almost like tactical warfare but against yourself you're working out where all of your weaknesses are and hopefully you're able to find out how to protect yourself a little bit better i just hope we do it well yeah look i think for a lot of companies it requires a little bit of a shift in mindset one of the things that i've heard before like i'll go and do training in organizations saying okay you know you guys really should be thinking about something like bug bounties and I'm like ah. Uh, no, we spoke about that. The lawyers don't like it because they think people are going to try and hack us. So, okay, got bad news for you, mate. So, Troy, memorable data breaches. We have no doubt you've actually dealt with lots and lots of data breaches over the course of your quite expansive career in cybersecurity. Are there specific data breaches that stand out for you? And look, you don't need to mention the names at all if you don't want to. Ashley Madison. <laughs> like it's, it's the one that everyone knows. You know, they're actually making documentaries about Ashley Madison now. Like there are literally multiple documentaries coming out about the whole thing. And, you know, it's one that captured the imagination of everyone, didn't it? Because it was so salacious. And it was so long ago, too. It was 2015, you know. So we're like, we're nearly eight years in. It was August 2015 the data eventually got dumped. And that's... That is still, I, I guess, like the high watermark for a data breach making news around the world for all sorts of terrible reasons. And then, Troy, what about something like SolarWinds? Had you seen a data breach like that before? I mean, things like that are particularly impactful because of the nature of the service and it gets us into that whole critical infrastructure and then is it nation state and all the other sort of very sophisticated things. I, I think before that, it was always things like Stuxnet, right? It's like that was always the thing that we spoke about. It's like, well, it's governments and it's nuclear and it's cyber war. I can't even do that without air quoting. Yep. <laughs> it's like it's cyber warfare. <laughs> and we're going to see a lot more of this sort of thing because it's it's an enormously valuable approach in any sort of conflict. I just feel that the whole thing gets a little bit buzzwordy, but it's like, it's an alternative to using kinetic weapons and it will become part of the threat landscape. Uh, but there's some truth to it as well, but it does get very, very buzzy. Yeah, no, I understand. And look, just one final nuance to that question. So when you see data breaches or you know these ex extensive data breaches you've actually seen throughout the course of your career, would you think that most of these data breaches are caused by people actually not getting the basics right? Or do you think it's advanced threats or do you think it's a combination of both of those things and more? I had someone break into my car about a week ago and there was a lot of discussion in the neighborhood about whether there should be more security people around and whether we should pay them to do more laps. And there's a guy that drives around, he's got a dog, and this would fix it. My position on it was I should have locked my car <laughs> because this is, this is what happens, right? Like this is the low-hanging fruit in in real life and 
digitally as well. It's I didn't lock my car because I was busy and we left the front gate open because of some, some works that were being done on the house. So someone went into my car and then they took the pocket knife out of my car and then they walked through my front gate with my own knife, which I got good video footage. I've got great cameras around. But the discussion sort of came back to adversaries being very opportunistic, very often unsophisticated, very poorly organized. This guy wasn't even wearing shoes, for God's sake. Come on, who breaks into a house without wearing shoes? And we're seeing the same thing online, right? So, so many times we see these data breaches where it is literally not a password on a database. Yeah, the number of MongoDBs that are out there, particularly around 2018 era, just because they didn't get password protected, or, or as I keep saying, like the backups on the websites. So very often we're just not getting these really fundamental basic things right. And it's not to say that there aren't sophisticated things out there. And, you know, SolarWinds and Stuxnet are probably more good examples of that, but they're the niche, like the volume is the really simple stuff we get wrong. Right. So it's fundamentally getting your cyber hygiene right, right? Yeah, I look at it is. And again, like every breach is still the result of a mistake somewhere. But I think it's almost, it's almost a bit of a discussion. This came up a lot last year when we we're talking about things like Optus and Medibank in Australia. It's like, look, you're never going to be completely impenetrable. Like there will always be a point. If you think about your own sort of home security, it's like, yeah, it all seems good enough. But if someone really wants to throw a brick through the window, they're going to come in. So you know, have we set the bar sufficiently high for the risk that we face, the likely sophistication of the people trying to break in, and then the impact if they do. And I think what we're seeing is very, very often we just have not set it high enough. And there are certainly cases where it is someone very sophisticated and very clever. And were we to go back and look at the scenario before they broke in, we would have gone, oh, yeah, all that looks pretty reasonable given what we know. But then someone was just motivated enough and had enough money and enough sophistication to get through. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. With all of those breaches, Troy, and as you were talking about the fundamentals and the basics and definitely a topic that Jess talks about a lot. So let's talk about some basics. Obviously, you'd be a fairly lucrative target from an identity perspective. So how do you manage your identity and passwords across all the different platforms? Do you run a different alias? How do you protect yourself for those basics? I'm fairly trying to get information out of me that I probably shouldn't be giving now. Uh, <laughs> I think if we look at the motivations of people, that's what's interesting. So is the motivation financial? If the motivation is financial, there's lots of people out there that they can target and lots of people that are much more likely to fall for phishing attacks or things than what I think I am. I'm certainly not immune to this sort of thing. I'm probably a little bit more worried about people wanting to go after me to more try and go, I got Troy, you know, or it's like reputation damage or, or something like that. And look, honestly, the sort of stuff that we talk about ad nauseum publicly is the key. It's, you know, I have a password manager, like everything goes in there. I have multi-factor authentication. I try and use U2F security keys wherever I can so they can't be fished. I have identity theft protection services. I keep my software up to date, <laughs> you know, lots of things like that. I have a safe for my car keys. <laughs> so if they do get into the house, they don't get to steal the car. There's lots of very sort of common sense things there. I don't think there's a lot there. People go, wow, I never thought about that. You know, it's it's not that sophisticated. To me, that's really interesting. I've got to admit, the basics to me are really important because I think it is something that we don't get right as often as we should and that I see organisations not doing as well as they should do. With that in mind, if we're looking at the key trends or challenges that the cybersecurity industry is facing is that something that you think we are still battling with at the moment and are there any other challenges that you see us facing 
there's so much low-hanging fruit around, you know, and it is that IRL example of the guy walking past the other day and my car's unlocked and the, and the door's open. Like there's just so much low-hanging fruit out there. It's just easy for opportunistic people. So we're definitely not getting a lot of basics right. But I guess what's also interesting is as we come along and we build better mousetraps, so, yeah, multi-step verification, TFA, whatever we want to call it, there's nuance to differences. But we see things like encouraging people to use, let's say, authenticator apps. You know, that, that's great. You should do that. So we see phishing adapt so that not only does it request the username and password, but then it like relays those to the service you're trying to log on to and it says, okay, please give me the six-digit token now. And everyone's like, well, okay, that, that's exactly what happens when I log in. I have to enter the six-digit token. So we do see adaptation from adversaries to take advantage of the security controls that we've put in place. But that's always the way, right? Like that's the same with physical security. We, you know, we build a better lock, someone figures out a better lockpick. And in regard to that, how do you keep up to date on all of the new changes and all of the new things that are happening, the new stuff that's coming out, the new attacks that we're seeing? How do you keep up to date on all of that? I don't. I just learned about one from you <laughs> like 30 <laughs> minutes ago that I didn't know about. But in my defense, that seems like it was a today thing. It was a today thing. I do constantly feel like I'm, I'm catching up. But what I do to try and stay as current as I can is, look, I, I read through a lot of social media stuff. I mean, unfortunately, there's a, a bunch of people usually bring stuff to my attention. I got up this morning, I had multiple emails from a data breach of a, of a company and people have just forwarded it on. It's like, hey, did you know about this company? It's like, okay, that's, that's nice. It's like crowdsourcing <laughs> up-to-date information. I read through a bunch of tech resources. I There's one newsletter I subscribe to. Everything else I got rid of years ago. There's a, a podcast here in Australia called Risky Business and they do a newsletter that comes out every couple of days, I think. Loads and loads and loads of good stuff in there. Just a really good sort of signal to noise ratio. But yeah, look, it's a little bit of all those things. And then the other side of the question, Troy, you are quite a prolific content creator as well. You've done a lot of courses on plural side, including quite a few courses in cybersecurity. And uh, you continue to do that. Can you tell us a little more about, uh, just being curious here, right? So can you tell us a little more about how you create these courses on plural side and what do you have planned for cybersecurity? I started creating Pluralsight courses in 2012 and I did that when I had a real job and I, I wanted to, I guess, just start to create some content independently, but also get some independence from a job that I really didn't like. And that's what Pluralsight did. It gave me the opportunity to no longer work for someone and I created lots of courses. I haven't created any courses actually, for, I think for about the last four years, but everything I have is still out there and, and ticking away nicely. Thank you very much. Mr. Pluralsight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's actually been really good. It is fun creating content, but things like courses are also very, very time consuming. I've done a bunch for One Password, for Ubiquity, for Veronis, other sort of commission things. You know, there's, there is pleasure in creating this stuff too, because you get to reach a lot of people and they see it and apparently it's useful to people, which is nice. But I think these days I like doing a lot more of the kind of ad hoc stuff like videos and talks and things like that. And just before we let you go, Troy, the last question I'd like to ask is around thinking about the next generation of defenders or people getting into cybersecurity and people wanting to pursue that career. If you could give that advice, and I'm sure you've given a lot of the advice, what is your best advice for someone that is making a start in cybersecurity or looking to join the industry? 
So that the first blog post I ever wrote, and it was just before my son was born, so it's easy to remember it. So this would have been, I think it was September 2009. And I wrote this blog post called Why Online Identities Are Smart Career Moves. And it was it was more like a thesis at the time because I didn't really have any, any identity. But a lot of what I was talking about is when I was hiring people, I could not find any information about them. And someone would apply for a developer job and they'd send you the CV and every CV said they were awesome. I know, like, what are the chances, right? And then you start reading through it and I'd be like, I know you say you're awesome, but how do I actually know that you're awesome? And they're like, well, I have references. So what, did you choose them? <laughs> it's like you're going to choose the people who are going to say the nice things about you, right? Anyway, where I was going with this is this was around at the time when things like Stack Overflow were getting like massive traction. So I go, okay, well, can I go and find this person asking questions on Stack Overflow or answering questions on Stack Overflow? Can I find any open source code they've contributed to? Have they ever done a talk I can go? Like, is there anything for me to independently establish that this person knows what they're talking about and has a genuine interest in what they're doing? And very often the answer was no. So my view, and then consequently the advice I'd give, is creating things online is a great way of just sort of like sticking the flagpole in your space in the cybers. So all of those things, you know, doing online talk, going to user groups, uh, even social media, being able to flick through someone's social media and, and have a sense of what it is that they're passionate about, to me is really, really valuable. And, and you, you won't know what that is when you start out. I didn't know it was going to be cybersecurity when I started out. But doing that over and over and over again over a course of time does tend to help you gravitate towards something based on the feedback that you get from others and based on what you find you enjoy. So pursue the passion and then I suppose most things will fall into place within that. So it's great advice. Well, yeah, look, that's been my experience, but you might not know what the passion is yet. I mean, I wrote so much random stuff about all sorts of things and it's like, I'm not done yet either. I started doing all this stuff around IoT. So I don't know, maybe I'll be like the IoT guy sometime in the future and we'll be going, remember when you used to be the security guy? I don't know, but I do know that putting things out there has a great way of helping me figure out what it is that I enjoy. Or perhaps a generative AI guy, Troy. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It could be that. <laughs> maybe I'll be the, oh God, the blockchain guy or something like that. Who knows? <laughs> I absolutely love that. I think being able to put stuff out there and I can, I can say that that's probably how I got started and how I managed to get here is purely just from publishing stuff and putting things on a blog and posting things on Twitter. So I think it's great advice. I can say that it certainly does work. Also, how cool is that, that you, we're sort of in an era where we can do that, where we can sit at home in our own spaces as, as we've all had no choice for quite some time there as well and build things in your own little confines of your house with nothing more than just a fairly normal PC. And then suddenly you can put stuff out there and whether it's whether it's just a blog or whether it's something that turns out like have I been pwned, you know, it's still just like one person sitting there creating stuff. I think it's really empowering. I think that's fabulous. And I think that's a great point to end on. So thank you very much for joining us and taking the time out to spend some time talking with us and answering our questions. I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love your insights. Thanks everyone. You've been listening to Authorized Access, a show about the challenges that businesses face when it comes to cybersecurity. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft ANZ. Microsoft offers a comprehensive set of end-to-end security solutions that span people, devices, apps, and data. For further information, please visit the website, aka.ms slash authorized access. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode of Authorised Access, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh, and we'll be back next episode with more Authorised Access. 